I grew up in the Front Range. Uh, if you don't know what the Front Range means, that's the east side of the Rockies. So I grew up in the Denver metro area. I like to call that the Front Range. Uh, and my, every year, my grandparents would come out, and they would take us camping for a week or so at a place called the Indian Peaks Wilderness Area. Uh, this is a picture of the Wilderness Peaks uh, Wilderness Area. Uh, it is taken from the National Forest Service website, but you could actually take that picture from my parents' backyard. If you went out of their back door, you could take pretty much that exact picture. It's an awesome view that my parents have out of their back door. But we, they would take us up into the Wilderness Peaks, the Indian Peaks Wilderness Area. That's a mouthful to say. Uh, and the Indian Peaks Wilderness Area stretches from, you can see right here, peak number one, which is Mount Neva, all the way over to peak 29, Meadow Mountain. Now, they didn't always take us throughout the entire Wilderness Peaks, Indian Peaks Wilderness Area. I'm going to say that all day now. But uh, they would take us to a specific call place called Brainerd Lake, which is located from peak 14 all the way to peak 17. So peak 14 is called Pawnee Peak. 15, which is, you can see like a jagged peak right there, that's Mount Toll. That's a really easy, when you fly into DIA, I don't know how many of you have ever flown into DIA or how often or whenever you plan on flying into DIA, Mount Toll is one of the easiest mountains to identify because it's such a jagged peak right there. It's, it's really easy. So now you can memorize it and, and as you land, go to land in, DIA, look out your window towards the mountains, because if you look the other way, you're going to see nothing but plains. I have relatives that uh, live in North Carolina, and they would fly out to my grandparents' house in Kansas and then drive to Colorado. And the second you hit Colorado, there's this big sign that says, Welcome to Colorful Colorado. And on the Kansas border, it looks identical to Kansas. So they would always laugh and be like, oh, beautiful, colorful Colorado. But then you'd, you'd eventually get to the mountains, which are big and beautiful. And Kansas has some of its beauty, too. But uh, it's a little different beauty, right? So anyways, so Mountain Toll is really easy to identify. And then 16 is Paiute Peak. And then right next to Paiute Peak is 17, which is Mount Audubon. So we would go up into this area. Now, as you look at that, you can kind of, they all look like they're even, right? They all look like they're about the same longitude and latitude, right? I mean, you can't really tell which one's closer and which one's further away. There's a little bit of a microphone in front of Mount Audubon that makes it a little bit more difficult. And we've been talking through Isaiah and Isaiah's prophecies. And so we've been talking about how it's kind of like looking at this mountain range, right? He sees all of these prophecies, but he's not entirely sure where they land on the timeline. He just knows that they're out in the future. Let's go to the next slide. So this is Brainerd Lake. This is where our campground was. So every year they'd take us to this campground called Brainerd Lake. See this big rock in the middle of the lake right there? That I have several years of playing on that huge rock and falling into the water. But you can see the peaks here. Now... We're up closer, aren't we? So now we get a little bit more definition. We get a little bit more detail as we look at these peaks. So Pawnee Peak, you can't actually see from this picture. From Brainerd Lake, you can't see it because this ridge right there is actually blocking Pawnee Peak. Mount Toll, do you guys recognize Mount Toll right there? You can see that nice jagged, it's a very A-shaped Mount Toll. And then just to the right of that is Paiute Peak. 
and you can barely see Mount Audubon. Mount Audubon is the biggest of those four peaks. But you got to start to see, okay, so Mount Audubon is actually further east. Paiute Peak is a little further west. Mount Toll and, and Paiute Peak are kind of on the same level there. And we can't even see Pawnee Peak. That's interesting that we can't even see. And once again, I think of Isaiah's prophecy. As he looks forward into this prophecy, he knows it's in the future. But sometimes there's some peaks that are kind of covering other peaks. So as he's looking towards the Messiah, he sees that there's going to be a Messiah. He knows that there's going to be a Messiah. But I don't even know if he understands that there's going to be a first advent and a second advent. Advent simply mean a coming. So I don't even know if he quite understands, as he's prophesying about this coming Messiah, I, I don't know if he even quite understands that there's going to be a, a suffering servant that comes first and then later, even though he talks about the suffering servant, and then later, a righteous ruler. But for him, it's kind of like Pawnee Peak right there. He sees it, he knows it, but, but he can't quite understand the full timeline. Let's go to the next slide. This is Blue Lake. So from Brainerd Lake, there's a trailhead, Mitchell Lake trailhead, which you, pass, you walk past Mitchell Lake, and you go all the way up to Blue Lake. It's a beautiful area. You're above Timberline. It's amazing. It is cold and snowy there all year long. I've been there in late July where the entire lake was frozen over, which was pretty awesome. But there you can see, what, what mountain is that? Mount Toll. You can see that nice a jagged peak. To the left is going to be Pawnee Peak. You still can't see it because we're so close now. And to the right, you can actually see Paiute Peak. We're beyond Mount Audubon now. Mount, Mount Audubon would be behind us. So you see, as you progress closer and closer, you get more of a view. Let's go to the next slide. Just for people that really like maps, because I like maps, you can see the, the topographical map here. Now, Brainerd Lake is about right here. So looking forward, this is the ridge that you would see before you hit Pawnee Peak. Mount Toll is just to the north. This is Blue Lake. This is Paiute Peak. And just to the east of Paiute Peak is Mount Audubon. So now we get you know, that topographical aerial view, and you can see how it's all laid out. Unfortunately, let's go to the next slide. Unfortunately, for Isaiah, as he's looking into the future and he sees this mountain range of prophecy, he doesn't get the topographical view like, like sometimes we might. When we look back towards Christ and how he fulfilled prophecy, it's almost like we get that topographical view, right? We get to look down and we get to say, oh, this is where all of this fits. But now as we look forward to the second advent, we're actually kind of looking towards a mountain range as well. But we get to the advantage of that we're, we're in the middle of the bowl there. We're right next to Blue Lake or Brainerd Lake, and we can see those peaks and we can say, okay, this makes a whole lot more sense. So now as we look towards the view from the back of my parents' yard, and you look at peak 14 all the way to 17, you have a much greater understanding of it now, don't you? You can actually see it much better. But put yourself in Isaiah's shoes. As he looks towards these peaks, and he doesn't, he sees them, he knows they're in the future, he kind of understands them, he knows the shape of them, but he can't quite understand the timeline. And that's what we're going to get into today. 
We're going to really dive into some of that timeline. We're going to actually go through a whirlwind. We're going to spend the majority of our time in chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 7. But then we're going to bounce on over to chapter 9. And then we'll bounce on over to chapter 11. So chapters 7 through 12, well, let's back it up. Isaiah is structured around two historical events. So chapters 1 through 6 are the introduction. And then we've got it structured through two historical events. The first historical event is going to be Syria teaming up with Israel, the northern kingdom. And they're going to come down. Actually, let's go to the next slide. I forgot I did more slides. So there's a timeline here. But they're going to come down and they're going to wage war against Judah and Jerusalem. And, and Ahaz, King Ahaz at that time is going to be faced with a question. Will you trust in men? Because his, his dilemma is he wants to run down to Egypt and make uh, an alliance with Egypt. So will you trust in Egypt or will you trust in God? That's the dilemma. And from then on, he, uh, Isaiah will develop that with prophecy. So it's going to be all about that prophecy he's going to develop is going to be all about trusting in God, that God is trustworthy. And he'll explain how and why God is trustworthy. And then in chapter 36, we get another historical event. That other historical event is King Hezekiah is on the throne now. And Assyria is the great power. And they will actually come down and lay siege to Jerusalem. And God tells King Hezekiah, hey, I'm going to give you the victory. But the question before you is, will you give God the glory or will you take the glory for yourself? And then from that event forward, he will develop some prophecy about how glorious God is. So from there on, all the way through the rest of the book, it's going to be all about God's glory. This first section, the first historical event, is, starts in chapter 7. And it's going to be about trusting God. But it's so, uh, so Emmanuel-centered, a lot of commentators and theologians call this the book of Emmanuel. Isaiah 7 through 12, the book of Emmanuel. So let's look at the timeline here. We got 930 BC. That's the division of the kingdom. So if you remember, Israel comes in, they take over the promised land, they set up a kingdom. I'm really buzzing through this quickly, but they set up the kingdom. And in 930, right after Solomon, the kingdom divides. And you've got a northern kingdom, which is called Israel, and a southern kingdom called Judah. Now, in the northern kingdom, you'll, you'll find some other names for it. Israel, Ephraim, Samaria. Those are some names used for the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom is usually just going to be called Judah, but the capital will be Jerusalem. So then in 735, Isaiah will be prophesying about, uh, well, we've got Isaiah 1 through 1 through 35. That's going to be around 735 that, that this prophecy will come. Then 722, Assyria will conquer the northern kingdom. 705, Assyria lays, lays siege to Jerusalem. And 606, all the way through 586, Jerusalem will fall to Babylon. So those are some of the timelines. Let's go to the next slide. Some major players uh, that we need to know, just to familiarize you with some names here, is going to be, king, the king of Syria's name is going to be Rezin. So the king of Syria's name is Rezin, all right? We're going to read that name a lot here, and I don't want it to all of a sudden get kind of confusing. Then the next one is going to be Pekah, the king of Israel. Remember, 
Israel is the northern kingdom. Sometimes we say Israel and you think of the whole area and you think of Jerusalem. It's the northern kingdom. Samaria is the capital. Pekah is going to be the king of that area. And then the king of Judah during this time is Ahaz. So as we read through from 7 through 12, those are the major players. Ahaz, king of Judah. Pekah, king of Israel. Rezin, king of Samaria. So let's dive in. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. So first, right off the bat, what we see here in verse 1, he's setting the scene for us, he's saying the context, we know that the northern kingdom... Israel has teamed up with Syria. They're coming down to wage war against Jerusalem. But notice the titles here. We have Ahaz, the son of, the son of, king of. Syria, or Rezin, is just the king of Syria, right? And then Pekah, the son of, the king of Israel, right? So, so what's up with this lineage? How come he gives this lineage? And I think the main reason why he gives the lineage, one is he, he knows the lineage, but two, we'll find later on in chapter 36, he doesn't go through the lineage of Hezekiah. He just says, King Hezekiah. He gives Hezekiah his rightful kingship. But he doesn't do that with Ahaz and Pekah. And the reason is they are both wicked kings. A wicked king in the northern kingdom, a wicked king in the southern kingdom. Both of them had turned from God. Both of them had brought in idol worship. Both of them were trusting in man instead of trusting in God. And so Isaiah doesn't even recognize their kingship. He recognizes the lineage. He recognizes that they should be king. But essentially he's saying you guys aren't even acting like the king God has commanded you to be. There were certain rules for kings. Neither one of them were following kings. Or, sorry, neither one of them were following the rules for the kings. So he continues. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So he emphasizes the house of David. Once again, this is kind of reminding us of the promise that God made to David way back in Samuel that, that God told David, hey, I'm going to establish a kingdom for you forever. I will establish for you a, a king who will sit on a throne forever. And right now he's addressing that house of Israel, not just Ahaz. But we can see that not just Ahaz, but the entire house of David. So essentially the whole land of Judah, all of Jerusalem, were shaking like a leaf on a tree. If you've seen a tree in fall in Doney Park. <laughs> that's kind of the picture of the people in Jerusalem. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jasub." Your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the water washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. So he gives them four commands. The first command is be careful. And this means to be attentive, to be focused, to not let distractions come in. If you can think of Ahaz has several 
counselors, several advisors, and all of them are giving him chatter. All of them are in his ear. And he's saying, don't let these people distract you. Stay focused. The next command is be quiet. Essentially saying, listen. And, and there's a little bit of a, a, an, uh, a twist here where it's listen, indicating a sense of peace. So have some peace. Listen. Be quiet. Be careful. Stay attentive. Both of these commands, these first two commands, have to do with acting rashly or acting responsibly in times of crisis. Will you act irresponsibly? Will you act responsibly? So he has, has several advisors telling him different plans. He needs to weigh each plan carefully, thoughtfully, and prayerfully. I think this is a huge lesson for us that we can take home in times of crisis. You slow down. Are you careful? Are you quiet? Or do you act rashly? Do you remind yourself who God is and who you are and what life is really all about? So those are the first two. The second two are do not fear. This means to... to uh, do not feel anxious. Do not feel apprehensive about a situation. How easy is it for us to have, be anxious? Think about being a king of a nation and watching two other superior armies come up and lay siege against you. Man, if ever there was a time to feel anxious, right? You're going to not just lose your life, but you could possibly lose the lives of everyone in your city. And yet, here is a reminder to not fear. The second, or sorry, the fourth command is do not let your heart be faint. Essentially, do not let these two people intimidate you. Do not be weak. Conversely, he could say, stay strong. Let your heart be courageous. Do not let these intimidate you. And then he gives them the reason. Because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remalia. Notice here he, said, he calls Pekah just the son of Remalia. He, he won't even mention him as king from here on out. He's not even going to mention his name because he has such low esteem for Pekah. But notice how he describes them, these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. They're burnt out. Yes, they were strong. They were burning ablaze. They looked like they would consume everything. But now they're just smoldering. There are a lot of things that are against God that seem like they are all-consuming fires. Look around. It doesn't take long. Read the news, and you see all of these philosophies, ideologies, political parties that are against God, and they seem like they will consume everything. But here we can take hope. 
that anything that is against God will one day burn out. Now, it might take a long time for it to burn out. It might even take our entire lifetime for it to burn out. But anything that is against God will one day burn out. There is nothing apart from God that is sustainable. There is no ideology. There is no political philosophy that can sustain itself apart from God. And we can take hope in that. So verse 6 describes what they're going to do. Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. No one knows who the son of Tabil is, but essentially what they're saying is, we don't like the way Ahaz is running the show. What we're going to do is we're going to come in, we're going to conquer, and we're going to set up a fake king. We're going to set up a puppet king that will do our bidding. And so then, verse 7, we get God's response. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. So he's just saying, hey, this is not going to work out. Their plans are against me and it's not going to work. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is resin. And so essentially what he's saying here is, hey, look, uh, all of Syria's capital is uh, Damascus and the ruler of Damascus is resin. And so he's kind of given us this idea of this, this uh, area that he is sovereign over. It's kind of like saying the head of the United States is Washington, D.C., and the head of D.C. is the Constitution. Well, what does the Constitution have authority over? What does the Constitution have sovereignty over? The United States. Is it the whole world? So it is limited in its sovereignty. That's what he's saying here, is that this guy, Rezin, he, he acts as if he is some god. He acts as if he is all sovereign, and yet his sovereignty is limited. His authority is limited to Syria. And it, he is contrasting that with God, who is sovereign over the entire universe. Essentially, he's saying, look, it is just a small piece. Now, don't get me wrong. Syria seems big. The United States seems huge. And yet, the sphere of authority is small compared to God. And then he goes on, And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And you might think, wow, that's really comforting. Listen to this, Ahaz. I know they're coming to knock on your door, but in 65 years, don't worry, they're going to be gone. And Ahaz is like, who cares? I'm going to be dead in 65 years, man. It's not that comforting. But what he's saying here is, hey, look. God has control of it. God has authority over the situation. You can trust that God will get done what he wants to get done. Now, part of that is going to be that he's going to allow Ephraim to stay for 65 more years. What's interesting, though, is that in 13 more years, the northern kingdom will actually fall. Now, Assyria will come in. They'll conquer the northern kingdom. Uh, but in 65 years, most theologians will say that the fulfillment of Ephraim being shattered happens because in 65 years, the Assyrian king decides, I've had enough of the northern kingdom, and he'll move everyone out, every Israelite out of the northern kingdom and move in a totally new people group which will one day later be called the Samaritans. 
It's one of the reasons why in Jesus' time the Samaritans and the Israelites despised each other so much because of what Assyria did here. So that fulfills the prophecy that, that is, the is, Israel kingdom is so taken apart that they can never be put back together again. And that is how they have been shattered. That is how Ephraim has been shattered. But the comfort here is, hey, God knows what he's doing. Even if it's not according to your plan, Ahaz, Ahaz, I understand you want me to shatter them right now. But that's not what I'm going to do. But trust me, in 65 years, they'll be shattered. Notice he doesn't say, I'm going to have Assyria conquer them in 13 years. And then he says, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. Now, what this once again is just saying, hey, look, they are limited. Ramalia Pika is limited in his sovereignty. He is limited in his authority versus God, who has all authority. And then he gives them the, this word of comfort. If you are not firm in faith, I shouldn't say a word of comfort. It is a, a command, and it is an axiom. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Now, what's interesting is, in the Hebrew, this is a play on words, and it's actually, almost literally, if you are not firm in faith, or if you do not stand, you will not stand. That's kind of the literal, more literal translation. If you do not stand, you will not stand. But there is just a little bit of twist in that it, the first stand, if you are not firm, it has a, a meaning to be firm in faith. So what he's really saying is here is if you are not firm in trusting God and stand firm in what God has called you to do, you will fall. And that is difficult for us to this day as well. When you feel the social pressure to start giving in a little bit, to begin to compromise your faith, when you feel that social pressure to say, you know, it's okay to be full of sin. It's okay to be in rebellion against God. When you begin to feel that pressure, if you are not firm in your faith, the eventual outcome will be falling. And we see this time and time again. People who thought, you know, it's okay to compromise this one area. It's okay to compromise it. It'll be all right. I still hold on to some, some truth over here. I still hold on to this part of my faith over here. But this area I'm going to compromise in. And what we see is little by little that compromising grows. And eventually they're not in faith at all. And so this is an axiom we can hold on to. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. If you do not stand, you will not stand. If you compromise your faith, eventually you will lose your faith. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of your Lord God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. And so what he's saying here is, hey, look. I'm going to trust in me. In fact, you can trust in me so much. Ask me for a sign. It can be anything. You could ask for fire to come down from heaven and consume your enemies. Right now, I'm going to do it. Now, this sign is to authenticate the prophecy that Ahaz is giving. Signs are always to authenticate 
what the Bible says. That's what the signs are there for. So when Jesus enters his ministry, he does a lot of signs and miracles, right? All of those signs and miracles are to authenticate his claim, his claim that he is the Messiah. And so he goes through his entire ministry doing all of these miracles to authenticate his claim. That's what God is doing here too. He's saying, look, I'm giving you this word, Ahaz. I'm going to deliver you. Ask me for a sign so I can authenticate it. Now listen to Ahaz's response. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now what is he saying here? He's saying, hey, it's wrong to put God to the test. Scriptures say, do not test the Lord your God. And so I'm not going to do that. And essentially he's claiming to be this good, God-loving guy. But when God asks you for a sign and you say no, you're still acting out of rebellion. Here, Ahaz, asking God for a sign wouldn't be putting God to the test. It would actually be obedience to God. But he's justified his sin. And most commentators think that Ahaz has already decided that he will not trust God. He's already decided that he's going to turn to Egypt and put his trust in Egypt. And so he doesn't want confirmation. He doesn't want to be confirmed by God that what God is saying is true. That way he can have this like covert rebellion. Have you ever had covert rebellion where you're like, I'm going to live a small part of my heart is going to live in rebellion, but I don't really want anyone to under, to discover it. I don't want anyone to, to know that I'm living in rebellion. So I'm going to shut my eyes and I'm going to shut my ears to my own rebellion. And I'm not going to let God speak into this rebelliousness. And that way I can pretend like I'm still a good Christian. I think we do this kind of stuff all the time. We're not much different from Ahaz in this. Where we're willing to justify our rebellion. And that's what Ahaz is doing here. But he covers it up with righteous language, doesn't he? Just because you have righteous language doesn't mean that your heart is being righteous. You can still be full of rebellion, but look really good to the rest of the world. You could look like a good Christian while being full of rebellion. And that's what Ahaz is doing here. He's trying to look religious. He's trying to look good. And yet his heart is full of rebellion. He's already decided that he's not going to trust God, that he's going to trust Egypt instead now listen to God's response. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. So he's addressing, once again, he's not just addressing Ahaz. Ahaz's heart has already turned from him, so he's going to address the whole uh, country of Judah. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Essentially, like, I'm growing tired of this. You keep on acting religious, and yet your heart continues to turn from me. You continue in your rebellion and your disobedience. I'm going to get fed up. And then he says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin can, shall conceive and bear a son, and his name, and call his name Emmanuel. So this is the verse that we are all very familiar with. We know that Christ fulfills this prophecy. 
But I would actually say if we, let's go to the next slide. If we take a look at our peaks again. Oh, I didn't, I didn't put that slide in there, I guess. Here we go. Here's our, here, here's our slide. I would say it's very similar to this in that, or even the view of Pawnee Peak from Brainerd Lake, in that there is going to be a double fulfillment here. Now, there's a lot of debate about this. Because if it was just Christ that fulfilled this, it wouldn't be assigned to Ahaz at all, would it? I mean, okay, so there's going to be this virgin 700 years from now that's going to give birth? That doesn't help out Ahaz or the people of Jerusalem at all. And yet we know that Mary fulfills this with Christ because she is also a virgin. So I think what's going on here is that there's a double fulfillment but it's a double fulfillment, and one is a prophecy of doom, and the other is a prophecy of hope. Jesus fulfills it with hope. Whoever it is in the first fulfillment is a prophecy of doom. Therefore, the Lord himself, because Ahaz would not ask for a sign, the Lord himself said, I'll give you a sign. I could have given you a sign of hope. I could have shown you that I will deliver you. But instead, you're going to get a sign of doom. And the sign of doom is that the virgin, there's a lot of debate about this term as well, the, the literal Hebrew means that it is a young unmarried woman. Now, a young unmarried woman in those days was kind of synonymous with virgin. So a lot of translators translate it as virgin, but literally it's just young unmarried woman. So, behold, the young unmarried woman will conceive and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. He shall eat curds and honey. That is a sign of poverty. So the curds are soured milk and honey. They were not going, it's a sign that the times were going to be very difficult. When he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, for before the no boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So what he's saying here is like, before this guy even knows how to choose evil or good, Ephraim and Syria will be wiped out. So it gives us a bit of a timeline. We don't have a huge timeline, but we know that Ephraim and Syria will be wiped out before this person is old enough to choose the evil or the good. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house. So, anyways, that's good news, right? But now he gets into the bad news. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day of Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So he's talking back to when Israel split, when there was... The split between the two kingdoms, you had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. There's not gonna, there will not be devastation as, or sorry, I should say, the devastation you have not seen since that day will come upon you. And the devastation is going to be Assyria. So what God is saying is he's raising up Assyria and Assyria will evade, invade Syria and wipe them out. And then he's, they're going to invade Ephraim the, the northern kingdom, Israel, and wipe them out. And then Assyria is going to come upon you. 
and that is the sign of doom. So that's the first fulfillment. Really happy, really cheerful. But we get the pleasure of living in the bowl in between the two mountain ranges. And we get to look back and we also get to see the second fulfillment, which is a sign of hope. And it is the sign that Ahaz could have had if he had trusted in God. And that sign of hope is that the Christ. So he's going to actually continue to explain throughout 8 how the Assyrian invasion is going to happen. He's going to continue to explain this sign of doom. But then in chapter 9, he switches gears and we get to see uh, the other part of the peak. That is the sign of hope. We get to see that second fulfillment that is the sign of hope. For unto us a child is born. Sorry, chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And so we see, first of all, the son is going to be, or the child that is born is going to be human. That's, that's an emphasis here. That unto us a child is born. He's a human person. And unto us a son is given. And we see God's grace that he is giving us this son. And then he goes on, and the government will, shall be upon his shoulder, meaning that he will have authority. You think Syria has authority? You think Ephraim has authority? This son will have authority. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. He's going to be so wise that he won't need a ton of counselors. He will be the one who gives counsel. Mighty God, that speaks to his eternality. He is eternal, this son who is human. Everlasting Father, once again we see that he is a part of the triune Godhead, that he is eternal, and that this one emphasizes his relationship with us. That he is like a father who cares. And he is the prince of peace. And when this son comes, he will make peace between God and man. No longer do you have to strive thinking you need to appease God. But this son will appease him for us. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And this speaks once again to his reign being eternal. This is going all the way back to Samuel where God makes the promise to David that he will set up his household forever. And that's what he's saying is he's going to send us this man who, who is born in the flesh, but is also God who will reign forever and he will set up his kingdom. Now, we get to the advantage of living in between the peaks and so we get to look back and we get to see the child that was born, but we also get to look forward and we know that he will reign forever one day. We get the pleasure of living in between the peaks. And as we look back, we can look back at this prophecy of doom and we can see that God fulfilled that. We can look at the timeline and say, God raised up Assyria, he did it. And that only confirms the second fulfillment. And we can look back even on the second fulfillment and we can look at the topographical map and we can understand the two fulfillments of this prophecy and we can say, God also produced this son who was God in the flesh who would come and die on the cross for our sins, who is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. 
And that should give us hope and the ability to have confidence and trust in God as we look towards the rest of the peaks and say, there is a future coming. He's fulfilled the past. We can look and say there is a future that he is going to fulfill. And we can say with confidence that although we don't know what our life will be like, although we don't know all the hardships we might go through, it might be 65 years before some ideologies burn out, but we know that without Christ, those ideologies will burn out, and that one day, because he has fulfilled it in the past, one day, he will fulfill it in the future. And we can trust that.